Hello, I'm Wendy Mitchell. I'm a film program manager at the British Council and a contributing editor at Screen International. Because as you know, you can't just have one job. That's how it works. Um, thank you for being here. Great, big, buzzy crowd. Uh, I think this is going to be a really great session talking about producing a debut feature. Um, I'll start with Tristan Gulliher from the Bureau. Tristan has worked on all of Andrew Haig's films, mm -hmm. yes, um, including Weekend, which was that the debut. Yeah, uh, his slight, second feature. Okay, yeah. but the, we kind of call it yeah. almost debut. Um, and also, you saw Forty Five Years. He's produced. We can go ahead and sit down. Thanks. Um, and you'll tell us about some of the other films you've worked on because you worked at iFeatures for a while. Yep. Um, and next, can I get Camille Gatan? Hey. And Camille has worked on The Girl with All the Gifts, which you saw with Glenn Close in it. And she can tell us about getting Glenn Close to appear in a zombie film, yeah, amongst other her. challenges. Yes. No, you ask her, and she reads the script, and she loves it. And okay. then she's in the West Midlands in Dudley. OK. And that's how it happens. OK, wonderful. And then we're lucky to have the director and producing team from The Hard Stop. And this is George Mponsa and Dion Walker. So Dion produced and George directed this feature documentary that premiered at Toronto last year. It's about the London riots and some bigger topics. And uh, thank you all for being here today. I wanted to start with the very obvious, because I think there's a lot of people in the room that might be meeting people today. Where do you, if you're a producer, where do you meet your directors? Um, maybe tell us how you and Andrew Haig met. <laughs> I was producing another film, and Andrew was the editor on that project, and we got talking, he'd made some shorts, I thought they were really interesting, and then he and I went on to make another short film, and that then built up to Weekend, basically, but, uh, so in that case, it was really through, like, a lot of different collaborations which came together with that first feature film, which I was producing and he was editing on, um, but I think you're right, that is, especially for producers, that is the fundamental question, that you can't produce something unless you have something to produce, and that requires both a script and a director. And both of those are very hard combination to get right at any point in your career, but especially at the beginning when you're starting out. And I think for a director, sometimes meeting the right producer can make, it obviously makes all the difference as well. It makes all the difference. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> I actually think, it, I think a really solid, strong relationship between a producer and a director can be for many people, career-defining. It depends, I think, on the type of career directors want to have. Um, but I certainly, you know, if we look around the British film industry, most of the, maybe not all, but most of the kind of emerging directors, maybe now on their third, fourth feature, a lot of them have continued to work with the same yeah. producers or companies. And I think there's a, there's a reason for that. But you didn't go to film school or anything like that? No, I, I studied law and politics. Um, I was the worst attendee on my law course, um, probably in the history of <laughs> Nottingham University. Um, uh, but I spent that time making films, basically. Okay. And that kind of led to me getting my first running job just after I graduated. And uh, that, actually through some quite direct relationships, led to the feature on which I met Andrew. Okay. So. And you knew from the beginning you didn't want to direct? I have directed. Okay. I did music videos. I did some shorts. 
Um, there was a brief period where I was kind of, oh, well, a few years actually, uh, where I was kind of in a collective of three filmmakers. Um, and we, at various stages, either took it in turns to write, produce, direct, shoot, edit, do all of these kinds of things. And I think gradually what happened is, as we were uh, learning a bit more like kind of our own skills and aptitude, we sort of gradually specialized. Um, and I think a bunch of my experience kind of sort of fed into producing, basically. Because I'd, I'd, I'd been an AD on films and some TV. And so I think this kind of creative experience, having done some of that directing and stuff before, and the logistical kind of came together in producing. Do you miss the directing? Do you think you're going to direct no. again? No. No. OK. Um, I'm lucky with the filmmakers I work with. We have very good creative relationships, and that, that satisfies that itch. OK. We're going to talk more about that yeah. in a minute. But um, Cami, maybe tell us a bit about how you came into producing and how you met Colm McCarthy, who directed Girl With All The Gifts. So I studied telecoms engineering. So all my friends now work for Google and are very rich, lucky them. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I always wanted to work in film, but I'm French and I, my parents are civil servants and I felt in France it was quite an nepotistic industry and I knew no one in it. So I studied engineering, ended up getting recruited by Saatchi and Saatchi and did a lot of production there and met a friend of a friend of a friend who was Mike Lee's researcher and I got drunk and begged her to give me a job and suddenly I'm Ashley Judd's body double in The Lovely. So that was my break <laughs> into the industry and I sort of never looked back. Um, and I, I've, it's quite unusual in that I started off like you, I started out as a runner and then I did some ADing and then I went into development and then I went into distribution. So I've sort of seen all the different aspects of the filmmaking process and then when the financial crisis came I lost my job and actually my best friend who's very perky said this is a great opportunity to start your own company because otherwise you'll never do it and and so that's what I did and and here we are. And how did you start your own company? Did you have some seed money from somewhere or were you just working uh, out of... Yes, my wedding fund. Uh, I was going to have a big wedding and then I just <laughs> invited my brothers and sisters and <laughs> used my wedding. So my husband thought he was rock and roll because he was like, we're having a small wedding and I'm really supportive, but really it was just my uh, getting my company started <laughs> fund. And uh, yeah, I just, I just spent three years doing a lot of other jobs that had nothing to do with uh, production, but I always made sure I worked part-time. So for example, I met Mike Carey for the very first time during a lunch break whilst I was a project manager at a branding agency. And, and Mike Carey is the, is the writer of author the girl of, with all the yeah. gifts. And I knew straight away I was going to work with him. And, and I'd met Colm back in 2007. I was working for another producer at the time. I was optioning a book. And Colm had called the publisher as well and realized who had the rights, tracked me down. We had coffee and we really got on and we kept on meeting each other. And uh, yes, yeah, so I've known him for quite a while and always knew we got on. And to go back to your point now, Colm and I have a company together and I work on all the films that, that he makes. So it's such a key relationship and we just have a shorthand and we just get each other. I know what he needs, he knows what I'm after. Uh, we just want to make the same kind of things together. So it's, it's such a key relationship. But I also work with other directors. As do you. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Dion and George, maybe you can tell us each sort of separately how, what you were doing 
and what led you to producing and directing, and how, where you two met and started collaborating? Well, um, I used to work, um, head up the Camden Film Office, and so I studied marketing and advertising, and so I've always circled the kind of, uh, the creative and the kind of um, creative world. Um, but I was working in um, Camden Film Office, and that's my way into the film industry. And, um, and essentially, there was, um, there was a moment for me when I decided that, yeah, I want to get, I, I want a piece of that, in the <laughs> sense that um, there's a location manager on Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, um, um, Simon McNeil Scott. Um, he would take me to various sets. So he worked for Warner Brothers at the time, and he would take me to various sets, and, and I would be involved in the actual meetings with the director and the producer at the time. And, um, and it, was, it was just, it was, I, my eyes were wide open, essentially. Um, so that led me to a thinking that one day I would get into producing, and, um, and at the moment now I'm considering directing my own projects. Okay. Um, I met George through um, a, a networking event, but George, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, we met through a film networking event. Um, actually, I'd seen Dion about a year earlier than I'd actually met her, and I'd, it was uh, a film festival in London, and um, I thought I need to talk to her, but I got distracted by someone. And then when I looked around, she, she was leaving. Yeah. And I thought, I, I thought I was supposed to talk to that person. It was my destiny, but why didn't it happen? And then a year later, we met. So I, when, I, when I met Dion, I was It's like uh, professional like love at possessed. first sight. Or yeah, exactly. Yes. You yeah. knew she was going to yes. produce with you. Yeah. And, and um, had you studied uh, directing? Yeah. I'd, um, <clears throat> so by the time I met Dion, I'd previously um, studied documentary directing at the National Film and Television School. So I graduated from there, and then um, I was fortunate enough to make my first um, uh, feature-length, sort of independent uh, um, documentary, uh, which ended up on BBC uh, Storyville. It was a film about this flamboyant Congolese singer called Papa Wemba and this cult of um, fashion uh, um, extremism, if you like, that um, he surrounds himself with, called the Sappers. People, some people might have seen an advert for Guinness, which features some of oh. the, the Sappers, so-called. Um, and uh, so I made that. Um, and uh, you know, I, I always basically just tried to wear two hats, which was one, you know, to uh, basically survive and pay the bills. So I managed to sort of get a career doing television documentaries, and you know, for. Discovery Channel and Nat Geo and Ch Channel 5 and the like. But at the same time, always trying to make my own independent films. And, um, you know, as such, you're always looking for people to collaborate with you, mm. you know, to go on that journey. And people are sort of mad and desperate enough to, <laughs> yeah. to stick around for three or four years for, you know, the duration that it's taken to make yeah. the, uh, the, the last three films that we've made. Yeah, I do want to ask about, we've all mentioned it already, this sort of creative collaboration and working that producer-director relationship has to be right and you kind of have to be on the same page. And maybe you can each talk a little bit um, about how you know it's right or how you even, how do you get on the same page? Um, how do you know if somebody's going to be the right 
collaborator, maybe just with examples like when you met Andrew, what was it about the way he spoke or the way he talked or the films he wanted to do that you thought, I'm going to work with this guy? No, I think it's, it's a sensibility. <laughs> yeah. You're looking for a common sensibility. And I think if you don't have that common sensibility, you're probably doomed before you start because you're not, you're not going to be on a converging path. You're going to be headed in different directions. Um, I think so much of, and especially the sort of cinema I, I do, you know, mm. it's kind of a, an art house or specialist or whatever you want to call it. Um, so much of what ends up on the screen is driven by the personality of the individual. Mm. So I think if I see something and it feels a certain way and has a certain, in Andrew's shorts, I saw an intelligence, a sensitivity, a real deep understanding of human emotions and psychologies. Um, and I just really believed in that and I was interested in it. And I think that's who he is as mm. well. And that's continued to be kind of the fundamentals of the films that he's made. So I think it's just about finding that kind of connection. There's another film which we've, um, which will be released later this year in mm -hmm. September called Daphne, um, which uh, was at South By in Rotterdam earlier this year. And that director had sent uh, us a short film as well. Um, I knew That's of Peter Mackey, Peter Mackey Burns, Burns yeah. who did, was it Milk? No. He did Milk, yes. Yeah. Is so that I'd, the short he sent you? Or? No, no, so I'd been aware of Milk like eight years ago or something. <laughs> it had won a Golden Bear in Berlin. I'd never met Peter. He sent me a short out of the blue, which was um, sort of like a prototype of what the feature we then made. And again, as soon as I saw that, I was just like, I want to work with this mm. person because anybody who can get that kind of performance from this, from an, uh, any actress, mm. um, and uh, dig that deep into the psychology of this person, I'm interested in. And then I met Peter, and um, so I think you know very, very quickly, basically. Um, so I, yeah, I guess you're looking for a common sensibility. Obviously, the way you talk about film, it's very clear. You're not just you know, filling in some forms for permits and getting money. You're a creative person. How, I think this must be different on every film with every director. How much, like how many notes do you give? Do you sort of say, Andrew's an auteur, I'm just going to let him get on with it? Or do you say, God, this scene really isn't working for me? Um, um, it, yeah, it's very different for every project and every director or writer that we're working with. Uh, with Andrew... We've just sort of found a way of working. He goes off and he writes, and he, he's pretty fast at writing, actually, but I might not see something for three months, and I receive it, I read it overnight, I see it on notes back the next day, and then he starts writing again. That's really that simple with him. Um, and I guess that's built up over a number of years of kind of shorthand and stuff. With other filmmakers, they'll send stuff in, we'll meet, we'll sit down and talk about it. But we, my, myself and our company, we do get involved creatively in the script. Um, but I'd like to think that is with a common goal of where you're trying to go, as opposed and to And supporting to a vision that you think yeah, that person has Yeah, and I think already. that thing of supporting a vision is not like a blind, yeah, we're just, the director wants to do it this way so we can do whatever he wants. It's not that at all. It's, it needs to be educated, and the purpose of the producer should be to try and nudge that vision towards reaching the widest possible audience it can. And each film is, you know, 45 years was never going to be a huge blockbuster, but I always believed it had a real place in this mm. world. Um, so any sort of notes and kind of nudging on that was in, in that like mm. trying to push it into that kind of space, um, and that comes down to script and casting and all sorts of things. Um, so I think that it is part of the producer's job to try and encourage the project into a space where it does also make business sense because mm. that's uh, we cannot keep making films if nobody goes to watch them or if they lose money all the time. So. 
Uh, we're very much trying to make the sort of films we make, which are art house and tough, but that actually make uh, some business common sense, basically. Thank you. Cami, can you talk, because you were there from the very inception and in talking with Mike about his graphic novel and script, and then yes. when Calm came on, how much did you shape it? How creatively are you involved? It's a bit like Rashomon, if you ask us. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we all have a different point of view in hindsight. <laughs> so um, Mike Carey uh, had been a big comic book writer for 30 years, and this was essentially his first feature. And when I met him, he'd just written a short story. Charlene Harris, who wrote the novels behind True Blood, was putting together an anthology of short horror stories about school days. And Mike Carey used to be a teacher, so he wrote <laughs> a, a short story about a little zombie girl who's trapped to a wheelchair and goes to class every day, which was interesting. So that's what I optioned and sent it to Colm. Colm, as a kid, used to love running around derelict factories. Uh, he's into what he calls... Very normal activity. Very for, normal. Yes. <laughs> it's what he calls dereliction porn. So I sent him the short story of the little girl in a bunker strapped to a wheelchair. And he was like, well, there's a story whereby we now go into the world and it's 10 years after the apocalypse in Britain and we shoot in lots of derelict factories. So for him, it was really a massive visual reference. And we started storylining it. And I remember it very clearly. It was coming up with the idea of the very last scene in the film. And then as soon as we'd cracked that, which was a mirror image of the opening scene, as soon as we'd cracked that, we started storylining uh, the, the feature. And then Mike started writing a novel in parallel. So the novel is sort of based on our treatment. And then the book, obviously being a book, came out very quickly. And he sold a million copies, and suddenly, I was making a film based on a book I'd never read, uh, which is the opposite of what usually happens. So it never happens that way. It'll probably never happen again this way. Mike, Colm and I working on our next film, Fellside, which is based on Mike's new book, which we've read. <laughs> um, so this is a whole new experience. Having said that, we just looked at one tiny aspect of the book. Only about 10% of the book is going to be in a film. And we really elaborated on, on that aspect. Um, in terms of affinities with talent, Mike uh, knew how to write um, action set pieces because of his Marvel and DC Comics background. And he really knew how to write female characters, which is, believe it or not, really, really hard to find. And I have an affinity with female protagonists, and so I was very interested in that. Column has a 14-year-old daughter, well, she's 16 now, uh, and really wanted to make a film for her. Um, so he had an affinity with the main character of Melanie as well. And uh, yeah, it's just when you, if, I, I would go as far as saying it's not just every film is different, it's every meeting mm -hmm. is different. Literally every time the three of you meet to talk about things, there are meetings where I literally not say a thing because I just need the guys to spitball about stuff. And then there are other meetings where we'll talk a lot and then I'll spend six hours on the phone with Mike the following day to sort of crystallize everything. So it, every meeting is different, every project is different. But for me, it's very much like um, dating. There is a part of it when you know you know. Mm. When a meeting goes well and an idea is great and you feel that it's a story that really moves you and that you really connect with it and the story is amazing, you just know that it's right.
Dion and George, how did you know it was right? I'd say it is very much like dating, and um, I think it can even be very much like marriage. And in some cases, it can actually be marriage. Mm. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, you know, uh, where was I? I kind of lost. <laughs> How do you talk together creatively? So in terms of producing with George, I mean, George is quite... Uh, so just to start with, the reason why I came on board the hard stop as a producer was because of my interest in the subject matter and also my interest in George, uh, um, George's talent. And, I mean, he's made previous documentaries and, um, and he, I think it's quite evident in, in his films that there is, um, you know, he's quite skilled at, um, and, at, at getting access and getting intimate access. And he's also skilled, so he's skilled at, at, at reflecting a particular, getting to the truth of mm. the matter, so to speak. And I mean, look, specifically in the case of uh, The Hard Stop, you know, Dion start, you know, started playing the role of producer. And actually, at one point, we had, we, when we started making the hearts up, we that was 2012, and actually there was a thought that it could be something that could be broadcast on television screens by the end of 2012. Wow, so something really because quick and newsworthy. Because it was still a very current story really, then, yeah. and it was still actually kind of like a pretty much a current affairs story, mm. and there was. Um, uh, uh, a notion that the Mark Duggan inquest was going to be done and dusted by the end of 2012, but then these intercept laws came into play, which were to do with uh, the legality of um, using uh, police wiretaps in a court of law, and that delayed the whole process uh, for a couple of years. So by that time, you know, um, by the end of 2012, actually no Mark Duggan inquest had happened. We'd gone to certain uh, broadcasters with a, an established television producer attached to see if there was interest, and there kind of was, but not really, and there was a lot of umming and ahhing, which is what happens a lot in television. Um, and then, you know, the sort of conventional, you know, broadcasting route sort of fell away kind of thing, and so did the, um, you know, the, the producer who was attached uh, with, you know, um, with that in mind, and then it was just Dion and I, mm. and uh, you know we were we, you know we we were the, I guess believed in the project, and actually I should say Dion at a time sort of had, I wouldn't say she had more belief in it than I did, but you know there was uh, she was just someone who's on hand to say look this is great material mm. this is because uh, in the back of my mind was also thought that maybe I'm just com com completely barking now, and uh, uh, this isn't. Um, this isn't something that's going to be relevant to many people because... I mean, and in that sense, as a producer, um, you know, and working with a director, I guess the role is to really, um, as, you know, support the director's vision in that sense and ensure that he's believing in himself. Uh -huh. And so that's... And so then at all times, it was like, no, oh. this is good material. This is good material. You can work. And then there's just the practical, the practicalities of, okay, well, how do we get this funded if it's mm. not going down the conventional route? And Dion um, pointed out that actually we should apply to Sundance for this because this story, Sundance Institute, the Sundance Institute, because this story is something that would resonate with an American mm. audience because of the subject matter. And, Again, I thought, well, maybe Dion slightly lost it now, but... Uh, 
well, I mean, there, and I think, she was absolutely right. I think before that, it was also the idea of, uh, I suppose, working out, well, this is a documentary feature. It's, you know, we, can we do it as an independent project? Mm. And um, which we did. Without we, a broadcaster. We start exactly without, with auto yeah. broadcaster. And so there was, you know, we, so we used our own resources for over 18 months. And yes, you know, you can make, start making documentary mm. films if you have access and stuff. You have a camera, you can really start shooting. And that's what happened. So, um, and we, we can talk about distribution and stuff here, or maybe I don't know. Yeah, I wanted to keep talking a little bit more about the, the finance, because right. I want to ask each of you how these films were financed. We don't have to go into every pound and pence. You might not want to tell all the dirty laundry, but you know, you got a bit of money from Sundance Institute. Yeah, Where I, else did you, did well, you put your own money into it? Typically, uh, documentaries, they're the good thing, although increasingly it's becoming really difficult. You can, you can start off with foundations and you know, get grants if it's a subject. You know, if you find a foundation that, um, relates to the theme in the documentary. And so that's what we did. We approached Bertha Foundation and their institution that is involved with um, social justice. So it was perfect. And that, was that through BritDoc as well or sort of separate to the BritDoc? We did Bertha? go to BritDoc yeah. later on, but at the time it was directly to Bertha. Yeah. And at the same time, we applied to, um, to Sundance Institute. And of course, they're an independent institute. They do have a documentary um, section. And so they came on board and it became a kind of domino effect. But crucially, we also went to the BFI. Mm. BFI, uh, they added um, financing. So it's not grant at that stage. But they came in for development and completion. By, like you say, it was a domino effect because by the time we once picked, you get a few good partners, yeah, right. more right. the hardest part was really getting the first bit of support, yeah. and that's where I think we were very fortunate to have Sundance. And it wasn't just fi development finance; it was also uh, an invitation to attend the Sundance Editing Lab. Wow! Uh, and uh, Dion went on the Sundance Producing Lab, and you know for. Those that don't know, you know, that's you go and spend 10 amazing. days in Utah yeah. and on Robert Redford's ranch <laughs> with all the, you know, for me, what was like my filmmaking idols and mentors and people like Joe Beanie, who's done, edited 22 of Werner Herzog's films. Um, um, <clears throat> you know, and the great and the good of the, of the filmmaking community are there to support your project. And on the editing lab, you go with your rough cut and you just workshop your rough cut yourself and a director and editor, and uh, that was a game changer, really. And by the time we got back and pitched uh, the project on the Sheffield um, at the Sheffield Film Festival to the BFI, you know, we, did you do that public pitch session that they do? We do, yeah. And you won that. Yeah, yeah. ours wasn't public, though, was it? It's well, yeah. it wasn't public. The round okay. that round wasn't public; okay. it was private. But it was it was a good session. Yeah. We enjoyed it. But by then, we had they it too. <laughs> lucrative in the end, I guess? Yes, yeah, so it was lucrative. Yeah. They're a great team at okay. BFI. Great. We love them all. <laughs> <laughs> if you're out there, they might have some new projects. <laughs> Cammy, maybe you can talk about uh, Financing Girl with All the Gifts, because obviously Warner Brothers came on to distribute it, but they weren't involved Only in giving you money to produce before it. Before we started shooting. Yeah, so, so it didn't they, really... They were last in. 
Um, I also have only great things to say about the BFI. <laughs> um, basically, I, I knew that Lizzie Frankie was also into genre like me. We'd always bump into one another at the LFF coming out of the most obscure <laughs> genre films going, that was fun. <laughs> so I knew there was an interest from her uh, into that kind of material. But because there was a female focus, because it was genre, because both Mike and Colin were essentially uh, first-time filmmakers, I think all of that felt really exciting to her. And they came on board for development. And frankly, I mean, you know, all three of us were brand new. So bless them for taking a chance. And we just worked really, really hard. And the first draft was fantastic. And then where we got lucky was because of the novel. By the time uh, Mike delivered the, the second draft, the novel had come out. Joss Whedon was in the UK prepping Age of Ultron. And anyone who knows what it's like to be on prep, like a film like Age of Ultron, he had a day spare. So he went to Waterstones, <laughs> bought the girl with all the gifts, tweeted about it and said, this is the best book I've read in ages. So basically, it really helps when you email finances going, look what Joss is saying about our project. So I still hadn't read this, the book by that. I still haven't read the book today. <laughs> but, but I did use the tweet to approach uh, sales agents. But because the, the BFI had done development, and by that point, Ben Roberts had read uh, the script as well, they were on board to put production financing. And it's exactly the same as you guys. It's all about who blinks first. As soon as you've got one meaningful financier yeah. who's interested in the project. It was the same on Shadow Dancer. We'd been dilly-dallying and you know, talking to Film 4 and BBC Films and BFI, and everyone was like, oh, yeah, I love James Marsh. He won an Oscar. He's really interesting. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And then I went to Paris, and I went to see Wild Bunch. And they went, yeah, we'll do a James Marsh project. And they put some money. And so suddenly, BBC Films were on board, and yeah. suddenly the BFI were on board. So it's really all about finding that champion, because they will champion and support you all the way through. And they'll also remind you sometimes what you pitch to them and what the essence of the story you want it to tell is. And right. sometimes you can get a little bit lost. And they were like, oh, but um, wasn't it about that? And it sort of reminds you. And sometimes it's fine to evolve, and it evolves into a better place. But other times, it's quite good to be reminded why we all got excited about an idea. And, um, and so, yeah, BFI came on board, and then Creative England came on board through the West Midlands Production Fund, and then tax credit and a UK pre-sale with um, Warners. You mentioned about um, passion and being passionate, and I just wanted to touch on that, I think, in terms of producing. And I mean, I, certainly as a creative producer, or I see myself as a conceptual producer, you know, there's this notion of, you know, you're, it was quite important for me to be as passionate about the project as George. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he says more so. Yeah. You know, so, you know, there's, you know, there's that thing where, you know, I guess that comes through in when you're pitching the project to yeah. finances. You know, you, you need to kind of present that, isn't it? It's years of your life, too. But also, it works. have to what, care enough about it. If yeah. you're pitching it and you're clearly digging your own film, they think, oh, well, people will be in the That's cinema right. and they'll get That's excited. Right. Right. Like, and then this happens and then that, right. and we're going to do... You know, we were shooting... We went to Chernobyl to shoot part of our film, and 
There's two ways of saying we're going to Chernobyl to shoot our film. There's we're going to Chernobyl, or there's, yeah. there's we're going to Chernobyl. That's right. And, you know, it's all about how you present it. I was of the, oh, my God, we're going to Chernobyl. How cool is that camp? And, and you know, I had to call my insurer to explain that to him. Yes. <laughs> I was taking part of my crew with me to Chernobyl. That's right. And I remember, I, I do remember having a little Red Bull before calling my insurer. <laughs> and I was super excited. And he just said, yeah, of course, of course we can do that, no problem. So passion and excitement, you know, you, you're basically the shop window for your project. So if you're excited about it, you're going to get finances excited about it. Justin, can you remember back for either Weekend or something like Daphne? Because huh? I think 45 years is a different sort of animal by this stage. But how did yeah. you finance and pull those? I think all the things together? we've just been touching on are a good illustration of the way a producer's job essentially evolves and fluxes throughout the uh, course of a project, basically. Um, at the beginning, when you were asking earlier, basically, are we a postal service and do we do applications for people? We do do that, but we don't just silently do that. And a big part of our role at the beginning is actually stopping that happening, not doing applications too early. Yeah. Certainly the way we will mostly treat projects, really at the early stage, we treat it like this little curate's egg, and it is cared for in the most precise, kind of um, responsible manner that you can to make sure that at the point you're about to show it to anyone, and then all this passion, you can also only have that passion if you believe in it. So yeah. you've taken it to that point, and then you believe that really it's, can live in the world, you are passionate about the opportunities and your ambitions for that. Mm -hmm. And then at that stage, I think a producer's job is fundamentally to make something which is utterly not real, it's totally nebulous and no one else in the world cares, mm -hmm. real. Like that, you somehow have to use your willpower to pull things out of the ether and make them tangible and real, basically. And getting that first money is, if, is such a major step on that. And then you can kind of start to snowball on it as well. And so the, a very big part of a producer's job is understanding when you can utilize good news, how you can build leverage on things, how something which is not real. And you really do have to remember, no one else in the world cares. Like you've been spending four <laughs> years working about it. And I've got projects I'm working on right now, which I'm so passionate about. None of you guys care at all. Um, <laughs> but somehow, at some point in those projects' lives, I have to make you care so you can come into the cinema and pay to watch it. Um, so I think at that point, we start to finance. The passion's crucial. Getting that first money on board is crucial. And uh, I think so often nowadays, the BFI are a very big part yeah. of that because especially on first features, getting a first feature way... Well, there are a few exceptions here because we have microwave, we have eye features. There are a few... Creative England have a smaller teams. fund at the yeah. moment. There are a few other exceptions, but I think a film of certainly the ambition of like the girl with all the gifts, and and docs as well. I think theatrical docs are almost impossible without the BFI money. Not impossible. So to go back to your question, weekend, for example, we didn't have BFI money. We didn't have uh, film four. It was it, it was torturous um, trying to finance that film. It took us years. Um, and Andrew and I had made a short before that that had played in Berlin, had traveled around the world on lots of good festivals. The short is very good. Um, we'd worked with good partners. Like the DOP on that is the DOP of Son of Saul and it's on many other things. You know, it's like, not that he'd done that yet, but there were, we were orbiting with, I think, good creatives and we could not convince anybody to give us the money to make Weekend. And that was at a point where micro-budget and low-budget wasn't really happening here. Yeah. Like, microwave existed, but I think it was still sort hit. of... Yeah. yeah. 
But Andrew and I were really inspired by a lot of American filmmakers, Joe Swanberg and Kelly Reichardt and all these people who had just gone off and done it. And we just said, right, let's write, let's write this script in such a way that we can make it for, I don't know, we just made up a figure, 25 grand, which we didn't have. But we're like, I'm surely we can <laughs> borrow or steal 25,000 pounds from somewhere. Um, and we wrote it in that way. And then there was a regional fund it was at the point of transition from the old regional funding system, there used to be eight regional funds, to Creative England, and basically they had some money that they had to spend, and there was somebody there who believed in Andrew and I suppose myself and the project, and that they gave us 40,000 pounds, and I said, right, let's go and make it. And by the time we shot it, we had raised a little bit more money, but we shot it for 86,000 um, pounds. And then the Bureau uh, put some money in at the end to finish it. Mm. Uh, so that was just kind of like persistence, <laughs> tenacity, and refusing to say, no, we're not doing this. And then, fortunately, when it came to 45 years with Andrew, that was a bit easier. Yeah. It wasn't exactly straightforward, but it was, was it easier. Yeah. Easier. Yeah. Um, yeah, does it feel like if you were trying to get a first feature financed right now, does it feel like people are taking those risks a bit more because they know that they you can be... You can't ask that question right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why not right now? Well, because of the transition and, you know, what's happening with Creative England oh, and yeah. BFI, it's, it's, I think it's too early to say mm. what the landscape is going to be like in six months. And that's the thing. The role of the producer as well is to keep up to date yeah. with mm. what is going on. And, and going back to your point about uh, we don't just do application forms, it's really important that step of actually sitting down with a producer and talking about your project. And your producer is going to ask you loads of questions that have nothing to do with the things you've been obsessing about for two years. <laughs> uh, they start asking all sorts of, uh, so who's your audience? Who are you trying to talk to? What are your tonal references? And they start actually really make you think about your film in loads of ways that are useful uh, in the long run. So. Yeah, I, I definitely don't see us as just people who fill in forms and know mm. who to go to to get the money. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, to go back to an example of someone who didn't have BFI backing, um, Under the Shadow was not financed at all through either Creative yeah. England or BFI. So it really depends on the project and how you want to go about making it. Yeah. There's still ways to do it if you don't yeah. get BFI funding. I mean, we're if you're passionate. Yeah, we're shooting a first feature in September this year, and that we don't have... Like the kind of <laughs> you always hope to have BFI and Film Four kind of in that, yeah. um, and we don't have either of them in that yeah. case. Um, and we've might been able to put it together. Creative Scotland are a big partner on that project, and then some commercial money and um, putting some money in ourselves. So there are ways, but if you don't have one of those partners, you have to start getting really creative um, with your budget for one, which then impacts how you can make the film, mm. and then how you're going to raise the rest of that money. Yeah. Can we talk a bit about distribution? Uh, well, just before distribution, yeah. I wanted to say we should also talk really about obviously the director, but also the rest of the team mm. and how crucial that, you know, getting them on board a project which is not, you know, they're not going to get financed, yeah. not grant, not going to get rich. They're not going to get paid. And not going to get paid, yeah. or, you know, potentially. So they're coming on board. And, and yeah. so, you know, I, we sh I should say... Is that, that through passion? How did yeah, you we had that? a lot of deferred fees. A yeah. lot of people are just passionate. A lot of people who believed in the subject matter, yeah. you know, still the riots had only happened a year or two beforehand. And there was a lot of people who mm. just uh, really great film uh, practitioners, you know, DOPs, editors who just like the project, like yeah. what it was about, what it stood for. And the people, they want to work with you, too. Yes, I mean, exactly. that's important. You're not, 
you're less likely to defer a fee if you're working for somebody you've heard is a real tyrant and a. So we had the cinematographer Colin Elms, um, uh, Matthew Pills, you know, camera Yemi, Michael Yemi. I mean, my, all of the names you've mentioned are yeah. people. They're kind of people you've worked with before. Yeah. People in your you have a sort of family. Person. Yeah, because it's yeah. obviously it's a it's a collaborative medium, and you know you pick up uh, uh, you know co-conspirators, collaborators as yeah. you go along, and you try and keep them. But you have to rally the troops. I think that's a kind of yeah. skill of the producer yeah. as well. You know, keep them keep motivated. Them happy. Yeah. They have to be well fed if they're not being well paid. That's so right. That's the <laughs> number one rule. One that's rule right. I know. Um, and maybe talk about the film's life, you know, on, in festivals and then getting release here and, and elsewhere and how you worked on all that. Right. So in terms <coughs> of the, so, and that ties into distribution. So um, the film is finished and you think, wow, this is looking good. We've, you know, gone through the labs and so on. And um, the next stage is we're seeing emails from Wendy Mitchell um, British Council and you know screenings for festivals and so and so we decided to start um, submitting to festivals and um, and we got an initial um, well we got acceptance into T Toronto Film which Festival which is a huge with thing. the heart which is a huge yeah. thing and so um, on the back of that we approached BFI and they came on board completion because it's like you know, we need it's on their list. exactly. We need to clear Keep rights levels. now, and yeah. this is it's not a kind of it's a kind of theatre release mm. kind of thing, and so um, and um, and so BFI and helped us with screenings to potential sales agents and distributors, and um, just before Toronto, uh, Cinephil came on board. Philippa Kowalski, international sales agent. international yeah. sales agent. And she's really she does a lot of. Big international documentary. Yeah, yeah, she's she's a star. She is, and um, she and then then eventually, you know, and because before that we were screening and you know people were passing, so it's it's not smooth ride, right? And so uh, she brought on uh, Metrodome, which was really um, well UK distributor, and yes, they they they've gone into liquidation now, but our film nothing came out. Nothing to do with our film. Nothing yeah. to do with our film. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but. What sadly, sadly, they yeah. were, you know, but yeah. they worked really hard. The team at what Metrodome we should say worked about really Metrodome hard. Is that I think they saw an opportunity to um, dispute the film as an event uh, to mark a, a historical landmark. I say historical, but we're talking about five years. So in 2016, last year when the film was released, uh, that would have, that was a five-year anniversary since the 2011 riots. So a lot of the uh, you know publicity and, and marketing was right, around this yeah. you know landmark um, mm. uh, moment, I suppose. And I think they did a good job. They did an amazing job, and we got really good press reviews, which helped. So it's it's now a kind of critical acclaim project, and and so we feel we've achieved. And and, and of course that the contributors um, helped quite a lot. We did uh, you know quite a number of Q and A screenings. Mm. You know they turned up. They kind of, you know, and and there was and something that the, you know it was quite easy to get the media uh, interest because mm. it was they were interested Topical in something that had happened subject. five years yeah. ago, you know. So we got quite a lot of TV. Radio. And what about international release? Did you you just so we didn't have an international release. I'm so sorry. Well, on Netflix, Netflix covered um, Canada, Australia, yeah. 
America and in this, on Netflix in the UK. But that's the dream, isn't it? Selling that's to Netflix. It. Absolutely. Absolutely. Then there's deferred fees got paid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, yes. We, absolutely. You still want deferred fees. Yeah. <laughs> one day, though. <laughs> one day. One day. Wow. So, Karen, obviously Warner Brothers had come on right before you started shooting. No, I'm going to say exactly. <laughs> one day I got an email from Wendy Mitchell. Yes. And, like, we did. And you were interviewing Colm and me. And you were literally the first person outside of the circle to have seen the film. So all our financiers had seen the film. And we were still, we hadn't done post-production yet. We were still doing VFX. And you were the first outsider to watched the film and we were interviewed by by her and I remember you were so excited. I was very excited like, about it. Oh God, we're on to something. <laughs> so was this just for the UK release or No, or? we weren't even I mean we hadn't even done the grade in the okay, sound mix. We were still in post. Yeah. And at that point you were like, you know, let's talk about cans and let's talk about everything else. So uh, in the end we opened the Locarno Film Festival. On the huge Piazza on, Grande. It's amazing. It's uh, eight thousand people in a medieval city square. <laughs> in, uh, it's pretty nice totally place amazing. to watch a film. Yeah. And our, our lead actress, who was 12 when we did the film, is from Nottingham, and she'd never left the country in her life. So she got a passport, especially to go to Locarno. And I remember her going, wow, that's what the world's like. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's what Locarno <laughs> is like. <laughs> it's really, really nice. Yeah. Uh, and then we go into Midnight Madness in Toronto, and suddenly we're in Sitges and Gérardmé and Busan and like it just went da 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 da. Yeah. And we, we have had international sales in every country but China. And Altitude sold it. And right. Altitude yeah. sold it. So suddenly as a producer, it just becomes quite an admin thing of keeping yeah. track of all the distributors, checking all the artwork, checking that talent is happy with everything, that they're doing interviews, that they're not, I mean, for example, in, <laughs> in Russia, they called the film World Era Z. And the poster is a ripoff of, yes, you've guessed it, the Brad Pitt movie. It's literally the same thing, and it's called World Era Z. We did brilliantly in Russia. <laughs> um, and so when I first saw the, the poster, I was like, well, we've made this, what I think is quite a classy zombie movie, and suddenly there's this image that has nothing to do with our film, do I really want to sign this off? And they're like, well, we really know our market. And you know what? They were right. They knew their market best. And I went with it. And yeah, you just have to keep track of all the distributors. So our final big release is actually next month on the 28th of June. We're out in France on 200 screens. Mm -hmm. We won Gérard May. We won two prizes there. So that was a big deal for Universal France. And so, you know, a lot of people think, wow, the shoot. <laughs> the show was two years ago, yeah. and I'm still living this film. You know, every, every week I've got five different contracts to sign about uh, about it. So uh, it's sort of this never-ending thing that keeps on going, and uh, I'm looking forward to July when hopefully it'll be over. <laughs> Or Never then you get the not. home video releases in every yes, exactly. territory, and yeah, yeah. Um, what can I add? Um, when we did Weekend, basically nobody wanted, nobody was interested to sell the film, really, um, initially. Um, Even after watching it? Or did they just sort of uh, say, no, it's too risky without So Weekend Weekend got to, went to South by Southwest. That was our world premiere. And um, that was one of those amazing... You know, we'd made this film in a total punt. Nobody knew who we were, cared about us, really didn't care about the film. 
And we'd sent it off to South by Southwest when it wasn't finished and knew nobody there to annoy, like, can you watch my film? Yeah. And then got a call four months later saying, you're selected in this section. I mean, it was, it was probably one of the most joyous moments I will ever <laughs> well, have in my career. And it does still um, happen. It does. Festivals yeah. do want to discover these out of nowhere. And yeah. they're super yeah. nice yeah. and yeah. really They really care about They films, love film. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was, you know, it's, it's a great story about mm. a festival doing exactly what you hope they're doing and, you know, watching their submissions, etc. So I got selected there, played there, won the audience award there. And even after that, it was, I think we probably had one company said, yeah, we'll sell it, but we're not paying you anything for it. And we'll, I was like, well, mm. it's kind of like we could do that. Uh, <laughs> but then, then there was another company who Andrew and I had been aware of quite early on, actually, who... Um, uh, they're called the Film Collaborative. They're based in America, and they specialize in documentaries and LGBT projects, um, and uh, sort of act like a, not quite a, essentially a sales agent. They broker the deals, but we don't sign the rights of the film over to them. They stay with us. Sort of a producer's rep, kind Essentially, of. yeah. yeah. Mm. So they're sort of doing a lot of the work of a sales agent, but they don't take the same commission. Their expenses were tiny, and then we had to do a large part of the work, basically. Um, so we did it that way, and that it kind of opened my eyes up because I'd, unlike Cami, had not worked in distribution or sales or anything. It was the one sort of blind spot, I think, in my experience at that point. And um, uh, I suddenly realized, you know, there's this whole world of distributors out there and all the rest of it. And I then basically made a point of, we, we managed to sell that film then to some very good companies, not in some countries, they were uh, kind of or kind of leaning towards kind of LGBT cinema, and in a lot of countries, they were just very good art house distributors. Mm. And I then made a point of every year after that, when I went to Cannes, I would meet with those distributors myself, which a lot of producers don't do, meeting the distributors directly and trying to just build those relationships. But they love to meet you too. I mean, they. Yeah, I think, I think there's a they really like to know there. filmmakers and. Especially now because the distribution market has become really competitive, so people want to know about projects early. And then you have to, as a producer, manage that. I didn't give any of them a script for 45 years until very late in the day. In fact, maybe even the sales agent much later when we had one had it. But I was talking to distributors in some key territories from very early on. So I knew from a pretty early stage where, which countries would buy 45 years. And I probably knew the distributors, and a lot of them are the ones who then went on to buy the film. And Match Factory sold. Um, and that was with the Match Factory, a very good German distributor. Uh, over the course of that same period, um, within the Bureau, we now have our own sales arm within the company. So Andrew's next film, Lean on Pete, and Daphne, which I mentioned, the Bureau was selling. Um, and I think one thing I find interesting in all of that is the way you position films. Uh, you, you position films by their associations, basically. So the people that you work with. the And that's your DOP, your editor, your financiers your sales agent and your distributor. And you know, if I say to you that um, I'm making a film and Curzon are releasing it, you immediately have a certain kind of image in your mind. If I said to you that Metrodome are releasing it, if it was a fiction film, you, have a, you, know, you might not be right, but you will immediately draw a certain conclusion, basically. And part, another part of the producer's job is to utilize that, that positioning, that kind of association, to get people to understand the respect what you're doing, basically. Mm. So with 45 years, it was a very conscious choice for us to sell to Curzon quite early on and partner with the Match Factory for the sales. Because after weekend, and maybe this isn't true because we're in the middle of it, but I still felt, even though that film was very well received, I still felt that everyone kind of looked at it and go, oh, that was a nice little gay film. And it's totally unfair on that film because it's, I think what Andrew did is so much more than that. But we felt there was that perception still. And what we wanted to do was make sure that 
the next time people looked at it and said, okay, actually, this is a director who's flexing muscles in a kind of different space. And now what Peccadillo we... had released that yeah, in the UK. They did a great job. Yeah. But they, they're one of those that you, I do think, if it's, they do smaller gay films a lot. A not, lot so, always, not always, but... and they're doing the leveling now. Yeah. But I think especially at that time, it was a lot of gay-themed films. Yeah. And, and a lot of do really, they do a lot of really great films, mm. but most of them sit within you know, that audience. Or, or um, Exactly. Yeah. And so we wanted to kind of... Uh, and also then also money kicks in at that point yeah. as well. You, you know, 45 years with a much bigger, or a bigger budget. Um, and so that's also a factor of what distributors pay. But so I just wanted to kind of get across the point that those people you partner with at that stage do really define the way the rest of your world, the world sees your film and will impact on the future partners you can build on it, basically. Um, so it's very important to be mindful of that. And because it's part of the reason we started the SEALs arm within the company, because we now are really... To use the, Andrew's new film, Lean on Pete, we've sold most of the world on that now. And we've really tried to, in certain territories, insist that we're working with the best art house distributors in those countries. And we've, and we've managed to attract them in most cases, and um, in all cases, actually. And um, part of that is about building a career for Andrew. You know, like People know him here, but maybe in uh, I know, Scandinavia, actually, Weekend did very well there, mm -hmm. for example. But it's important for us that Andrew's next film also has a theatrical release, so we're building a career for a director. Building these long-term partners that you, exactly. he will still have in 20 years, you would yeah. have. Yeah. And a better example is maybe Daphne, which yeah. Peter Mackey Burns' first feature. And again, there we've managed to partner with really good distributors, and that we hope will mean they are more inclined to come back for the next yeah. film. And maybe they will even pre-buy the next film. Exactly. Or yeah. You hope. We didn't, we didn't talk about the audience um, in t uh, at film festivals mm. and how important it was, um, certainly for us under Hard Stop, when we showed at um, Toronto our first screening, our premiere, world premiere, you know, we got kind of packed out cinema and, um, and we got a, a standing ovation. But that, and that was very important because in the, in the audience were, you know, your sales agent, yeah. You know, your potential buyers, maybe Netflix was in Netflix, there, seeing everybody giving actually you a standing ovation. There, um, you know, we were told. It so, yeah. so it's that thing of, um, A, it's crucial to get the festival on board, and then you need to work that, you know, really work um, with uh, the PR person and, and so on, and the festival PR person to ensure that you get a packed out screening. Yeah. And some good reviews and things. Good reviews and so on. Um, we definitely want to hear some questions from the audience. So I'm wondering if anybody has a question yet, just raise your hand and we'll get you a microphone. So I don't know who's closer coming. Well, um, actually, can we go to the, this lady in orange and then you in the middle there? Hi. Um, I'm a scriptwriter. I just want to find out what each of you are going to be working on next. Top secret? <laughs> Mine's a bit hush-hush at the moment, but I will say something that's actually a documentary story. It's a drama fiction that emanates out of the reality of one strand of the real story of the hard stop. So oh. I'll say that. Watch this space. I don't know yet, but it's a you know, feature, feature film intended for cinemas, I guess, and film festivals, as we've just been talking about. I'm developing a project called Invisible Woman 2.0, and uh, I'll be directing and producing. And George is co-producing with me. Um, 
It's um, at the moment. It's a it's a <laughs> yeah. It's a hybrid <laughs> film. <laughs> well, do you want to produce again, <laughs> again? Fiction emanating out of documentary. It's um, a cross between Pretty Woman and Deepan. <laughs> Anyone wants to see that? Wow, I want to see that. Yeah, <laughs> that's Put that the on response the we want. Right. Right. Um, I've I've actually going to have two films simultaneously. One is a first feature for a woman director and a first-time writer. And they just came into my professional life at the right time, and we're going to shoot in January. And the other one is Column's next film. And you mentioned that you're doing two at once. I mean, I think that's important to mention as a producer. You don't get yeah. to plan out your life. No. That's right. In 2015, I'm going to do this, and then this month I'll start this. It, you go when the money comes in, Yes. Right? Yeah. And the actors are available. And the, yeah, availability. Yeah, <laughs> um, the, I suppose the next thing, two. I think it's the same thing. Basically, we have two projects that look like they're going to go at the same time. Yeah. Um, one is first time filmmaker. It's a love story, um, which I think is a this a really beautiful project that we have been working on for a number of years, and I'm so happy that it is being made now and um, to watch the space for that. And then we're also working um, with a couple of other producers on uh, Hong Kao's second feature. So Hong directed a film called Lilting before. So those are the next two films that hopefully we'll shoot. Did you, you didn't work on Lilting? No, not no. at all. So you just liked Lilting and wanted to work with it? Um, yeah, uh, liked Lilting a lot. Um, and also Hong had actually worked at, was working at Peccadillo at the time they released the film. So I knew him well, Andrew knew him. and. We actually, it was another producer initiated this project, and at a certain point, um, it's an Irish project, Irish set project, and they wanted a British co-producer, and we've come on board. So that's, we're excited. Organic, I like yeah, how it's it great. feeds in. Um, do you have the mic? No? No. Can we pass the mic to, I promised that lady in the middle. It's coming that way. Hi, um, my question's to Tristan. Um, if you wouldn't mind sharing, um, whenabouts in the process did you approach Charlotte Rempling for 45 years? And whenabouts did she come on board? Yeah. And um, did you have Carleen make the approach to her people? Um, or did you approach yourself? And also, um, which partners did you have on board at that stage? Were the BFI on board? Were Film4 on board? Yeah test of memory. Um, <laughs> uh, so with Colleen, she was on board from very, very early. Um, I've worked with her many times now. We've, I don't know how many films I've done with Colleen, but it's like, uh, I think it's about eight years we've been working together. So we do start working with her very early in process. I'm sure there's other, I don't know if you've done the same, but other producers often attach the leads themselves and then attach the casting director. It really depends. Um, uh, BFI were already in, Film 4 were I think their money was really in as long as the casting was right at that stage. And Curzon were very, again, it was kind of if the casting is right, basically. It was kind of part of an, you know, it's a real chicken and egg conversation at that stage. You get, like you're saying, no one wants to say yes, but nobody wants to say no. Um, so it was at that stage of really asking people, we need you to commit now. And they're like, yeah, great, we love the script, so who's in it? Um, and uh, we had, the script was at a very good second draft. I mean, Andrew's second drafts are not really like most second drafts. They're, uh, he works a lot on them, and it was a really, really beautiful screenplay at the point we sent it out. Um, so it was you know, at the end of development, in the process of financing, and both Charlotte and Tom read it really quickly. I think it was 
took three weeks from sending the script to Charlotte to her being, like to having a, uh, a deal memo for her. Oh. So it was really fast. She read it, I think, in a week. Andrew and her spoke a week later, and then she said she wanted to do it the, day, the next day. So that, I mean, it doesn't always go that smoothly, <laughs> but that was a good experience. Um, Can we go to you? the guy in the back, and then we'll go right to the front row? Or, yeah, middle. Yeah, sorry, there's too many questions. Hi guys, I just wondered what you thought was the most important trait as a producer. Yeah, characteristic. What's your character trait that makes you a good producer? Patience? No. (laughs) Not patience. No. I think, I I don't know, I think I have a bit of a loud mouth. And um, <laughs> and, um, and and I, I I push hard, and you, you kind of have to have that ability to push hard and not and challenge. Is that? Yeah, perseverance. perseverance. Maybe not patience, yeah. but perseverance. Yeah. If things fall apart, you pick them up the next morning. Yeah, that's yeah. right. No, right then. Oh yeah, not right <laughs> in the morning. Yeah. And you have to be able to yeah. take that knock back because you do yeah. get that a lot. So and and still kind of just continue through. I think that perseverance is probably the main thing. I think something I, I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate this previously, but I worked with someone who I felt didn't display this characteristic, and it's essentially responsibility. It's like you are responsible all the time, every second of the day, and that's not just for, in fact, it's not really for if the tea doesn't turn up or the breakfast doesn't turn up. I'm talking about more fundamental, artistic, creative, financial casting issues. Um, you can't, there's no escape <laughs> as a producer. And if you, you can't pass the buck, you can't pass the buck. If you pass the buck, the film won't get made. It just won't happen because you have to be at the vanguard the entire time, telling everyone it's going to happen. And if you drop the ball for two days, it might not happen. I mean, I think it really is that brutal. It's, uh, yeah. Um, I'd say also honesty is really important with your the, your top team because if they feel you're hiding things from them or not telling them the truth the trust is broken and without trust there is there is no film and i think i've seen producers i used to work for before who fibbed quite a bit and it didn't lead anywhere good and it was a really important lesson for me to know that and column knows that i will deliver the bad news and the good news and i think it's important to encourage people when they do good jobs you know sometimes what we ask our production designers to do is pretty much impossible and then you arrive at 8 a.m. and the set is ready and you're ready to shoot and it doesn't cost anything to give them a pat on the back and say awesome thank you and then sometimes your location manager will go over budget and it's a disaster and it's okay to have that conversation too <laughs> I just think honesty is is actually a really really important thing to have as a producer Question in the front row. Yeah, um, I just wanted to ask how much input did you have in the sales and distribution um, of your various projects? And also, how do you monitor the, um, the end game, basically? What was the last Do you part have of any. That? Sorry? Monitoring the, 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 the. Basically, the finance. Oh. Yeah, or especially like once you have a distributor, are they reporting back to you? Do you trust what they're saying? Well. Um, I think because BFI was involved, we just trusted them. Yeah. And um, so it's good to have, you know, because they're a good support network. I mean, and obviously you trust your sales agent and you, you trust the distributor to, to work out a f- fair deal, really. I, I, but do you, then, like with Warner Brothers, do you get 
Do they let you help with the poster? Do you get sign-off? Well, we, yeah, the, we were completely involved. And, you know, it's, they look at it um, from a completely different perspective. They were really happy with the film. And for them, it's about starting a relationship with Colm as a director. It's not just about distributing The Girl with All the Gifts now. It's about what if in three films' time, Colm is making an $80 million movie super good movie, they want Colm to go, I had a great experience with Warner. So actually, a lot of the industry is based on trust. You always hear horror stories, and obviously there are tons of them, but there's also a lot of trust where if you treat people badly, they just won't work with you again. And if you make a better, bigger film next time, you just won't do it with them and they'll lose out. It doesn't make any sense commercially for them to, to be that way. I think one of the hardest things I think uh, for producers and directors is knowing where the line is with distributors in particular, sales agents too, but distributors especially when you're working on posters and trailers and all the rest of it. Um, you know, I think there's a, you know, the distributor might be over here, the director might be over here, and the producer <laughs> should hopefully be somewhere in the middle here, generally brokering that um, um, conversation. But you also have to remember that the distributors are experts. You, have, you know, if you're working, if, you, if you're working with a distributor you believe in, you believe that they know what they're doing. And I would, I have to give them the same respect that I would ask a financier. You give us the money to make the film, so now let us make the mm. film. Um, so it's kind of getting that balance of being on people's case in a healthy sense, but mm, recognizing that they probably know better than you in the end. I have a good example for that. We were working on Funny Games US. And the Japanese, uh, I don't know if you know Funny Games, but the, the two lead guys were there with golf clubs on the poster. And on the Japanese poster, you had that, and you had two fried eggs floating <laughs> above them. And we were like, what? And <laughs> Japan was the biggest territory by miles. And I'll never forget that sometimes they know best, and you just have to trust them and they go with the it. They know the local market. <laughs> Eggs are big. <laughs> Eggs are broken once at Naomi Watts' feet in one scene, and that's it. And I think that's where it came from. But it ended up on the Japanese poster, and they were right to do that. So there you go. Um, I have, we only have time for one more question. I'm sorry. Your hand looks the highest in the striped shirt. Please make it a great question to end on. Hi. Um, how do you convince funds to trust a first-time director? Oh, the big one. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, great one. Thank you. <laughs> Preparation loads and loads of preparation so that when you meet with them they can't say no and on girl we had a 70 page presentation with visual references casting references tonal references and it was we'd almost made a sort of visual storyboard of the film and and column literally talked to everyone through it scene by scene and I remember being excited being like yeah go and see that so I think preparation is everything really and he had done some TV. Yeah, he'd even done a feature already, yeah. but it hadn't had any release. Yeah. So, um, so for example, we, <laughs> Colm had decided he wanted to shave the hair of all the kids in the base. And he just found this black and white photo of Romanian orphans in the 1980s and used that as a reference. And I just remember the look of all the finances when they saw that. And then he showed Guantanamo Bay orange tracky suits, and I just remember at that moment the finances were like, cool, we get it. He really has a vision for the he film. He was prepared. So he was totally prepared. Yeah. He knew what he wanted. And, you know, it had taken about, I'd say, eight to ten weeks of really, really preparing that presentation because we knew 
we needed the BFI to put a significant of money in, so we had to put all our eggs in that basket and work really hard for it. I think sometimes also just having a good short, like you mentioned Peter had done mm -hmm. some award-winning shorts. Um, sometimes a financier would say, hey, why don't we make a short together before we entrust you, you with a feature, but it happens <laughs> quite a bit, I think. Time. No, because it's not good yeah. to make a short with a financier, yeah. just you have to make a short. <laughs> yeah, you have to make another so, short before you yeah. get the gig. Yeah. But yeah, how do they trust? Um, I think there's two parts. I think if, you know, if, you, if you're the financier, what do you want to know? And um, in my brief stint uh, on, as I feature, I feature mm. exec, I was kind of on the other side of the table, and it was really insightful to me. And I realized that um, you know, people often, if people get rejected from something, as, as we often are, you always want to know why. Why did you reject it? And the honest truth is, very often, it just didn't excite people enough. And there's no, nothing that can be articulated more than that. So I think the first thing is, does the person who engages and reads the project, assesses it, are they excited by it? And I think you do everything you can to make sure your presentation is such that it's going to do that. And then the second part of it is, well, why would they say no? And then you try and remove every reason why they would say no. You know, they're going to be worried about their performances. So you have a short you can refer to. You have amazing cast. Mm -hmm. you, you know, uh, we feel, you know, we are always get this on our projects. Oh, it feels like, it, you know, what makes it cinema? I'm like, on 45 years, what makes it cinema? And it's like, <laughs> um, you know, and that's like all, all I can say is that it's in the expression of the filmmaker, the way yeah. it's photographed, the way the sound is created, all of these things. It's a, that film was never, ever going to be televisual. You know, like that's, a, and we still get it on other projects because very often we make drama, you know, like kind of people talking and the idea that, I'm going off on one, but the idea that people uh, talking in rooms cannot be cinematic is so infuriating to me because if you've seen any Bergman or any whatever, you know. <laughs> but so I think the second part of it is remove the reasons to say no, you know, and challenge all of those things. That, that's mm. for me. Yeah, I mean, I just agree with what Tristram and Camille have just said. And just to reiterate, I mean, when we pitched um, to the BFI, we had spent a good over a month maybe six to eight weeks preparing our pitch. We'd been on a pitching workshop for the project. And actually, by the time we got in that room and did our 20 minute pitch, it was a performance. It was like doing a stage play. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> we were so full of so much pent up energy and raring to go, we were probably on the verge of killing each other. We just, by the time we had this panel in front of us, you know, we just let them have it, I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm sure they got their head blown back. Um, you know, it can't, you can't be too prepared and it yeah. should in a way be a bit like, you know, it's like lines you've learnt and you've, you know, we had a, a show, uh, you know, our clip as part of the presentation, so I think that lasted about three minutes and then the rest of our pitch was about seven minutes and, you know, we basically knew our lines, didn't we? Mm -hmm. It was all... Very, very, very much about preparation. So be prepared yeah. and let that passion That's right. come through. Yeah. At the right moment. At the right In moment. In those five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry we didn't have time for all your questions because it's been such a great discussion. But um, I hope you've been inspired by what's possible with debut features and go out there and make some. And we look forward to your next ones too. So thank you so much for your time and thanks sure. for your questions. <laughs>